We're going to be back in the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7 here at the end of the chapter. I was looking back, and it's, it's kind of remarkable. It's been uh, 10 years since we started on this journey together, and uh, we're a little over halfway, so praise the Lord for our time together. You know, we've seen some remarkable things so far together in the book of Hebrews, and we sort of find ourselves really at the end of the first major point of really the beginning of this multi-chapter explanation of the importance of Christ's priesthood. It began in chapter 7. We're going to see it continues all the way through chapter 10. In many ways, this is the most emphatic theme of the entire book. Not only is Jesus superior to angels, to Moses, to Joseph, to every patriarch that has ever lived in the history of Israel, but he is greater than the greatest administration of covenant communion with God, Aaron, and the entire Levitical priesthood. Now, one key emphasis in Hebrews chapter 7 is the efficacy of Jesus' priesthood compared to the inefficacy, the temporary types and shadows of Aaron's priesthood. If you examine the instruction that God gave Moses in the Old Covenant concerning priests, it's unavoidably clear that the responsibilities of the high priest, really, he had two primary tasks. He made atonement for sin, and he made intercession for the people. He's the one who took the needs, the plights, the difficulties of the people in supplication to the ears of God. So we see here in the office of a priest, atonement and intercession, and they are both co-extensive. You know, the priest prayed for those whom he committed atonement for. He never prayed for people that he did not atone for, and he never atoned for people whom he never interceded and prayed for. There is an inseparability here in his work. This propitiatory sacrifice was to turn away the foul, rancid, putrid stench that our sin is before the very face of God, to pay the penalty of the horrid offense that we are, one and the same group. You know, there were a lot of symbols used in the ceremonial sacrifices, and especially the ceremonial gown that the high priest would wear. It pictured for the people in a very, very real way the corporate solidarity of the people with their priest. He wore what was called an ephod. This was a a sleeveless garment like a tunic. Um, It had a front and a back, and it was joined together at the very top by two shoulder pads that had an onyx stone. Carved on this stone on each side, there were six of the 12 tribes written. So that way, between the two, all 12 tribes were pictured and represented. And in this wonderful picture, we get the people bound to the priest who he would perform intercession and atonement for. There's solidarity, federal representation taking place here that is so tremendous that we cannot miss it as we enter our text today. The Levitical priest took the people in a symbolic way into the presence of God. But here's the dilemma of what the author of Hebrews is telling us Those were like a cheap copy of what was to come. They never actually took anyone to God. They never atoned, and they never really interceded for anyone. And in contrast to that, Jesus actually takes us to God. He does this in a perfect way that the old covenant priests never did. Now we have to ask ourselves, why can Jesus accomplish this job that no one else could? What makes his intercession and atonement successful? Why is his priesthood efficacious? And that's what we've been looking at in Hebrews chapter 7. We saw in verses 20 to 22 is based on an oath sworn by God himself, the pactum salutis, the life of the Redeemer, the guarantor of a better covenant because of the oath of God. In verses 23 to 25, it was due to the indestructibility of his life. He has divine life. 
He is a dual mediator according to both natures, divine and human. And so because of that, he never loses his station. He never ceases to intercede because he's the God-man mediator. And today we're going to see that he is efficacious because he is the consummate priest of God. And I want you to hear this. The author of Hebrews has been belaboring this very point for this entire chapter of the consummate priesthood of Jesus Christ for one reason. Because he is the high priest that you desperately need. And I want us to see that by three testimonies today concerning our consummate high priest. Three testimonies that will function as our outline. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, 26 to 28. We will see it in his person, verse 26, his work, verse 27, and finally his office, verse 28. So that's what we will follow, his person, his work, and his office. Go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. And I will read for us Hebrews chapter 7, 26 to 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's see here how the text tells us that Jesus, as the consummate priest, is because of his impeccable person. His impeccable person. The text starts with this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. I don't want to just roll over that. It is emphatic here. We can rephrase it, such a high priest was exactly fitting for us. He's precisely what we need. And we really get five qualities here regarding his person to show us exactly how fitting he is. You know, sometimes we make the mistake of reading a list like this and we see all these qualities, you know, holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and we sort of kind of blend them all together, right? They sort of become just, you know, bland, generic. Well, we get the point. He was sinless, right? Well, let's not do that today. Let's sit and kind of marinate in the richness of what God has here for us concerning the consummate person, our high priest. You know, these terms are not just throwaway, verbosity, wordiness for the sake of wordiness, or repetition for the sake of repetition. No. Each term here actually gives us a unique sphere or quality that we need to pay close attention to regarding the consummate high priest. First, he is holy. Here we get a picture into the perfection of this priest. He is holy on so many accounts. As God, he is inherently holy. And as man, he was free from the smallest spot of stain or sin. We know Jesus is holy because of the miracle of all miracles, right? The the virgin conception of our Lord. He has no earthly father, which really highlights to us in the hypostatic union, the union of these two natures in one person, that he didn't have Adam as his federal head. He never received the imputed guilt of Adam. Like the new man, the, the new Adam, the second Adam, he begins life in innocence and he ends it in proven pure holiness. That's why Gabriel says to Mary, Luke 1.35, the child to be born is called the Holy One. And he proved this throughout his entire life. He was a perfect man. We saw that in Hebrews 4, right? He was tempted in every way, but without sin. Peter says he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, incomparably pure. And he already been told that numerous times in the book of Hebrews. So what is the apostle trying to tell us here? Only a holy high priest was qualified to represent desperately wicked sinners before God. This requirement refers to the complete purity of Christ's nature, free from any stain and corruption of inherent sinfulness. And while that is certainly true, that's not the emphasis here. 
the emphasis is on the sphere of holiness known as covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness in communion with God. In other words, Jesus was without any flaw, completely pure, which made him a perfect high priest to intercede on behalf of sinful humans before God. He was perfectly faithful before God according to covenant standards. He earned the right as a man to be in the presence of God. A faithfulness that is measurable, inviolable, it can't be circumvented. You know, throughout history, God has communicated with humanity through various inviolable promises. You're probably familiar with a lot of these. In the case of Adam, God established an inviolable relationship in which Adam was told to obey and to live. Had Adam obeyed, he would have enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God forever. However, by his disobedience, Adam forfeited the blessings of the law and instead inherited and merited death, separation from God, and cursing. Now, not to leave man in that condition, we see God then intervenes with Adam and Eve, and he makes them a promise to them. We call it the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15, where God said, I will do this. I will send a seed. I will send a serpent crusher, a death defeater, so that you may live. I will do this. You notice the difference there? God will send the seed of a woman to bring blessing and eternal life and perfect communion with him. I'm sharing that to emphasize the significance of the term holy that is used in this context. God has always been true to his word and has constantly fulfilled his promises. But this unwavering covenant faithfulness is also why God is called the Holy One of Israel. So holiness here in Hebrews chapter 7 is emphasizing covenant faithfulness. Let me kind of show that to you. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 55 for a moment. Keep your hand here in Hebrews. Look at one other text on our way back. Isaiah 55. While you're on your way there, Remember, God's people had sinned. They had been exiled. That's really the context of Isaiah 40 to 66. God promised to redeem them from the covenant curses through the Messiah, who would be a covenant for the people, a suffering servant. Isaiah 55, let me read it, verses 1 to 3. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on things that are not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. In verse 3, the word there, steadfast, in some translations, the NAS says faithful mercies. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant faithfulness, covenant kindness, the tender covenant kindness. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that uses the word hosios. It's the term that we have in our text in Hebrews 7 for the word holy. That's the word that is used to translate hesed there. Is the term that's used for us, this covenant, faithfulness, and kindness. Holy. Psalm 16. You want to turn there real briefly on our way back to Hebrews? Another helpful text for us. Psalm 16, a very simple one. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Holy One, the covenant faithful one, 
In the book of Acts, Peter identifies Jesus as the Holy One. That is mentioned in Psalm 16, verse 10. As the Christ, Jesus demonstrated perfect covenant faithfulness by fulfilling all of God's covenant for humanity. He is the embodiment of covenant faithfulness, having kept it all perfectly. In Acts 13, 34 to 35, it says, As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David, verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Do you see that? In Acts, we see the connection there by Paul between Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, verse 10, to make the point that David could not have been this holy one that is mentioned in those passages. In fact, that's what the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2, 27 to 29. He says, David died and his body's still here. The title, Hosios, the, the covenant faithful holy one, can only belong to the eternal Son of God who assumed human flesh as the second Adam the true Israel, the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ. He alone kept God's law perfectly, demonstrating absolute covenant faithfulness. He kept the law perfectly, every single precept. He was faithful and obedient to the Lord. He is a covenant faithful holy. We see he keeps both heads of the law. You know, there was the natural demand, the the precepts of God's law that we owed him as his creatures. And then there was the dreaded penalty of the law that we owe God as covenant breakers and as his prisoners. In his active and passive obedience, we see he's in right relationship, covenant relationship with God on account that he was weighed by both heads of the law and he was found worthy. He became the curse for us. You know, he was cut to pieces for you so that God's law and promise might be perfectly fulfilled. In the Levitical law, Exodus 24, 8, you know, there was blood thrown on Israel, which was the covenant promise, right? That their blood should be poured out for covenant unfaithfulness. You know, this is true of all humanity. Those who don't keep the covenant will have their blood poured out. And what do we see here about our consummate high priest? I mean, our text is telling us his blood was poured out in our place. Luke twenty two twenty, And in the same way, he took the cup that they had, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see how fitting he is for you? What Jesus is saying is that his death was a covenant sacrifice, and his obedience merited covenant reward. And guess what? As a priest, he can mediate that to us and for us. I mean, are you really hearing me? He can mediate covenant blessings. And as a priest, he mediated the covenant curses. Priests act under covenants. And that's what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 8. He's building us towards that right here. Jesus is the covenant priest that you need. So before God, he is holy, 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 keeping the entire law. He's in perfect, holy, covenant communion with God. And second, the text says he is blameless. He is blameless. The term blameless refers to one's relationship with other people. In in the case of an individual who is described as blameless, they are known as uh, loving their neighbor as themselves, as possessing a character that is free from the negative behavior towards other people. Now, stop to think for a moment. This isn't true of you, right? I mean, your thoughts, your motives, your relationships are anything but blameless. I mean, even your best relationships aren't blameless. You're not a perfect husband. You're not a perfect wife. You're not a perfect neighbor. You're not a a perfect employee or employer. You're not a perfect parent or child. You are not a perfect friend. He was a perfect teacher and friend. When he was mistreated, he didn't return guile for guile. When he suffered, he made no threats. He went around healing, not hurting. Blameless. 
It can be rendered harmless. So as the term holy describes Christ's perfect conformity to the will of God, both inwardly and outwardly, in contrast, harmless refers to Christ's behavior towards humanity. He's the only person who ever walked the earth without contaminating everyone else around him, without tempting or injuring all of the people around him. Being holy enables him to love God with all of his heart, and being harmless enables him to love his neighbor as himself. This term can be rendered innocent or without evil. He committed no immorality. Jesus was completely innocent and blameless. His thoughts and actions were always pure. He never committed any evil deed. His moral character among men was flawless. We saw he was tempted in every way. We are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.14. He was the righteous one. He was the only man who could ever stand before God's justice among other people and have the verdict rendered righteous. Third, our text tells us he is pure. He, he is pure. It can also be translated undefiled. Now, pause to think how this is different from the previous two. For 33 years, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who took on human flesh, with all of its weakness, for 33 years he lived in a sin-cursed earth. Adam was born in paradise and perfect bliss. Surrounded by food, Jesus was born to a poor family, starved to death in the desert before being tested. He had to struggle in this life and learned obedience through the things he suffered, proved obedience through the things he suffered. He was surrounded by sinners. He had a sin-cursed mother. He had a sin-cursed human father. He had sinful siblings. He was surrounded by wicked people. He had bad friends. Think about it. A betrayer. I mean, Judas himself called him brother. Have you stopped to think about that? In all that time, nothing from the outside could cause him to sin. He is holy. He is blameless. He is pure. I mean, these three emphasize the sinlessness of the priest. There's not one arena that you could imagine. You know, there are people that you could probably label as blameless, right? I mean, you know, they get along with everyone, but they're wicked to the core. It just doesn't come out. But, you know, they're nice to other people. There are others, you know, they mean well, but, you know, they fall on their faces sometimes publicly, sometimes just in relationships with others. Well, with these three terms, we see the triumvirate here to show us that in every arena he is without sin. Behold, dear brothers and sisters, the immaculate character of our Lord. He not only entered this world as a spotless lamb, but he left with his holiness fully intact. For 33 years, our Savior walked among us in a world cursed by sin and death, and yet he remained undefiled by it. He mingled with sinners and contracted no defilement, just as the rays of the sun can shine into the foulest stream without it losing its own purity. Oh, how great is our priest's purity. He was morally undefiled in the same way that the priests under the law were required to be ceremonially, and yet they never were. He was never infected by the evils around him. He touched the leper, and the leper was cleansed. He came into contact with death, and death was conquered. Even when faced with the adversary of our soul, for 40 days, the devil himself, he emerged as spotless at the close of that as when he first began. And remember, the Levitical requirements for both the priest and the sacrifice that they brought was it had to be unblemished, unstained, undefiled. The lambs, they couldn't have broken limbs. They couldn't have spots. They couldn't be sickly. And the priests were supposed to be the same way. But we saw the priests under the old covenant were unable to escape the contamination of those around them and their own sinful nature, which left them stained and defiled. So before offering sacrifices for the people, they had to make a sacrifice for themselves and their own impurities. The Christ is not like them. He was never tainted by sin. From his birth to his death, pure. And so as a result, he's capable of entering into God's holy dwelling, unblemished by sin. 
that really brings us to the next qualification. So we've seen that he's covenant holy, he's right with others, he's not contaminated from the outside, and now it says he's separate from sinners. Now, let's be careful here. This doesn't mean he was a monastic hermit who was fearless or, you know, fearful with brushing shoulders with other sinners, right? It wasn't that he was all of these other things because he stayed away from everybody. That he would seclude himself away from the world to kind of keep himself isolated so he didn't bump into some dirty beggar on the street, right? Or to keep himself at arm's length from tax collectors, politicians, or even worse, liberals. On the contrary, he was the only man on the face of the planet who is holy, and yet we find him abundantly compassionate to murderers, to thieves, to adulteresses, and the like. We have to be very careful how we think about this. Association or communication does not mean participation or contamination or even endorsement for sin. He had relationships with some of the worst in society. He helped demon-possessed people, politicians, Roman soldiers. He received and ate with sinners. He was numbered among them. And on the cross, he died in the place not of the righteous. He had to be counted as a sinner to take the place of sinner. Friends, are you a sinner here this morning? If so, aren't you glad he associates with you? You know, the Christianity of the Bible is a Christianity concerned with saving not the healthy, but the sick. Not the righteous, but sinners. Are you a fornicator? An adulterer? A thief? And you may sit here and you may look at me this morning and kind of in your own self-righteousness, you may say, I'm not like them. Right? I'm not like that. Before you write these words off, think of this. Are you an alcoholic? Have you committed abortion? Cheated on your spouse? Are you a Roman Catholic or part of some other false religion? Or are you lazy? A liar? A glutton? How about a bad friend? Do you break your word? Well, guess what? If any of those are you, you've come to the right place here this morning. Because Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And yet... He always remained pure and undefiled, never affected by the evils around him. You know, the church fathers highlighted this by talking about how the lepers were cleansed when he touched them. That's how pure Jesus is. That when he encounters death, death is conquered. This shows us the perfection of his character, the power of his victory over sin and death. His purity is unmatched and his victory over sin and death unparalleled. We've got to stop to think about that more often. We knew he was holy before that, but we really see the perfection of, on display of his righteousness through the things he suffered and endured and that he accomplished those things without falling into sin. Jesus was never separate from humanity, although he was separate from depravity. It says he was separate from sinners. This, this phrase here in the Hebrew is in, or sorry, in Hebrews, it's in the Greek, is in a perfect tense, meaning Jesus always, Jesus always has been and always will be separate from sin. Holy, blameless, pure, set apart, four essential qualities of our priest. None of those are true of the Levitical priests, not a single one. But why mention it here at the end of chapter 7? Because those things are not what actually makes him a priest, right? Right? He's a priest by oath, Hebrews 7, 21. By divine appointment, by an indestructible life, Hebrews 7, 16. So these things don't make him a priest. They're what makes him an efficacious priest. The point here is that he was not and is not a sinner. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was never a sinner. So the point is not that he avoided the company of sinners but that he himself was not a sinner. You know, he can't offer in any efficacy a sufficient sacrifice if he wasn't free from the sin himself. It's not enough for him to offer a sacrifice if the offerer was a sinner. 
John Calvin said this, He is described as separate from us, not because he rejects us from his society, but because he is uniquely distinguished from us and that he is free from all defilement. John Owen said, He who was to be a middle person between God and sinners was to be separate from those sinners in the thing on account of which he undertook their place. He can't stand on your account if he's just as guilty as you are. That brings us to the next phrase, the kind of the fifth personal qualification. He's exalted above the heavens. Now, I read a phrase like that, and I don't even understand how someone could see that in the book of Hebrews, exalted above the heavens, and think in their mind that the eternal Son was somehow subordinate to the Father. I mean, this is a testimony to his divine station, his divine status, his exalted glory. We've seen this in Hebrews already. Hebrews 1 verse 3, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. If he already said that in the opening passage of the book, why repeat it here? Why has he got to repeat this? Well, because in our sinful pilgrimage, we're oftentimes to forget it. But also because we need our king priest to be at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, to have uninterrupted and unbroken access to God at all times. That's what we need. We need someone who is exalted above the heavens. Jesus has maximum efficacy because he has unbroken access to God, being God himself, by virtue of his own divine dignity and essence and his accomplishments as a man He has unlimited access to God in spades. He sits on a throne in heaven. That kind of priest meets your needs. Do you understand that? Every other way of getting to heaven, religion, morality, even conservatism, guess what? It doesn't get you there. You need a priest who is holy, who is blameless, who is pure, who is undefiled and exalted. With a priest like that, salvation ain't a problem for you. Without that, friends, nothing in existence can save you. This speaks of Christ's resurrection, exaltation, his ascension, glorification, and rule in heavens. Remember Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 6.19-20, This hope that we have is an anchor of the soul. In heaven, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has gone to heaven on our behalf, and he is interceding for us there even now. Second, so first, He's a consummate priest because of his person. Second, he's a consummate priest because of his all-sufficient sacrifice, because of his work. Verse 27, who doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. There are some marvelous contrasts here between Jesus and the Levitical priests. I mean, first, their nature is different. Jesus is sinless. I mean, that's all verse 26. And Levitical priests were just as much sinners as those that they tried to represent. I mean, unlike those priests, Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. This is kind of a continuation of the previous verse. The Old Testament priests, including the high priests, had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinful and unfaithful. They had the guilt of Adam. They were defiled, unholy, unrighteous sinners. Jesus is not like them. We see that here in verse 27. And remember, this isn't anything new. We saw this in Leviticus 16. They had to kill a bull for the sins of the priests. The largest animal ever sacrificed in the ceremonies of Israel. You know, the whole nation gets away with a goat. But the priest, it takes a bull. Unlike those priests, he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. It's essential to understand that not only... Is he an unblemished high priest, but he's also an unblemished sacrifice. And he sheds his own blood for the people. The animal sacrifices offered in the past were only symbolic representations of the grace of Christ. 
Only the blood of Christ can serve as a sufficient atonement for sins. Jesus completed this work on the cross, paying the penalty for sins, taking the curse of God on on our behalf. He became defiled, stained, and guilty in our place. Another contrast, the, the substance of the offering. They offered dead animals. I mean, they slaughtered brute beasts. They slit their throats. They drained their blood and sprinkled it in a barbaric fashion on the mercy seat. And guess what? A flea-ridden brute beast of the field never took away a single sin. Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus makes an offering of himself. The perfect priest offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. A man, a perfect man in the place of sinful men. That's what we heard read earlier. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold, your futile way in life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Remember, he was a, a dual mediator. The sacrifice of his humanity on the altar of his deity. What a tremendous thought. Such a glorious sacrifice, so much better than a dull beast. I mean, you remember how it worked? The old priests, before they could offer sacrifices for you, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were sinners. I mean, yes, God appointed them. Yes, they were to represent you to God. Yes, they were to offer sacrifices, but they were sinners. So they had to offer sacrifices perpetually. And not only that, but how often were those sacrifices made? Not yearly, but daily. Thousands upon thousands, probably countless sacrifices from 1444 BC all the way to Jesus' time. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away any sin. The Levitical priesthood sacrifices were repetitive. They were unending. Our text says day after day. Day after day. Day after day. Every single morning, every single evening, day after day. Week after week. Day after day. As hours roll into days, days into weeks, weeks into months, months into years, years into decades, into centuries. The frequency proves the inadequacy, doesn't it? Interminable repetition compared to the single sacrifice of himself. One time, once for all, for all time. Never to be done again, finality. He satisfied the demands of a holy God. A perfect sacrifice putting an end to the perpetual, unending sacrifice of the whole old system. Hebrews 10.10 We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. For all time. I mean, isn't that reminiscent of Jesus' words in John 19.30? It is finished. Atonement made once for all, for all time. Jesus is the high priest, the consummate priest that we need in his person, his atoning work, and finally his office. Verse 28, for the law appoints man as priests who are weak, but the word of the oath came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The apostle has acknowledged that God appointed the high priest to serve in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. However, the difficulty facing this group of Jewish believers and their unbelieving family members and all of Jewish society, for that matter, is that they believed those priests would remain. And what we see here is that that was never the plan of God. God had planned to remove that specific, at a specific time, a specific place, to take away the faulty priests of the old order, the types, and to replace it with a permanent priest of a totally different order. Now, this transition would have been startling for them and far from being cause for regret. I mean, you can imagine, right? The culture shock that that would have caused. All of a sudden, my priest is gone. Rather than regret, it's actually superior. It provides safety, blessedness, glory for the church. Basically, what the author is saying is that the Levitical priests were appointed by the laws of the Old Testament, but Christ The new perfect priest was appointed in a superior manner, far above the laws that govern the typological order. 
The priests were just ordinary human beings, whereas Christ was the Son of God. The priests were appointed under old laws, but Christ appointed by divine oath. Hebrews 7.21 told us, The oath sworn to the Son, it was mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, The Lord has said to my Lord. Well, when did the Father make that covenant promise to the Son? Let me talk about that oath for a moment. We call this the intra-Trinitarian agreement. When the Godhead determined all the details that would be undertaken in what we call the economy of redemption, which in our text is just referred to as the oath, the plan of God. But when did that happen? It took place, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, before time began. It is pre-temporal, and that is, why it is called, that is why he is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. So when the text says, the law appoints priests who are weak, that's the old economy, but the word of the oath, that's the pactum there, the plan of redemption, then it says, which came after the law. What does that mean? Does that mean the oath came after the law? When did God do that? How would that fit with the nature of eternal redemption, the plan of eternal redemption that we've seen? Let me help you here. Let's make this a little clearer. It's not the oath that came after the Levites. It's not that God had a plan with the Levites and they were weak, so he went with a plan B. No. It's not saying that the oath came after the law. It's saying the word of the oath. The word came after the law. There was the oath, and there was the word that came. That's 1 Peter 1.20. He, Jesus, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That's the oath. But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The plan in eternity was that the Son's incarnation would come after the typological fulfillment of the Levitical order, after it had run its course in God's program. We see the same thing at the beginning of the book of John, don't we? John 1, 1 and 14, you probably have it memorized. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as the only begotten from the Father. Do you hear that? Just like our text is saying. There was the Word, the monogenes, the only begotten Son of the Father, reference to eternal generation. And our text says, Hebrews 7, 28, but the word of the oath which came after the law, a son. So the word, the son, comes in the incarnation after the Levitical type, after the weak men. The priests had their weaknesses, but the son was without blemish, perfect. What's also really exciting about this text, you notice it in your Bible there, it says, how it, it, it takes another comparison and contrast. It says, the law appoints men. You notice that at the beginning of the, of the verse. And if you look in your Bibles, in italics, it says that it appoints a son. Do you notice that? Appoints there is in italics. It's telling us something of the Word's involvement in his own appointment. It is a triune act that the Son was appointed to be the priest of his people. An appointment taking place in eternity past, but brought to fruition in the incarnation of the Son of God. The triune God appointed those typological priests, and the triune God appoints this consummate priest. Behold, the high priest who reigns according to the order of Melchizedek, the one who holds his sacred office based on an indestructible life. Our Lord is the chosen high priest to whom the Father spoke an oath in eternity and his appointment endures to this very day. He is not a mere man of flesh and blood, but the Son of God himself, the perfect embodiment of divinity and humanity united. He stands above all other priests. Now that last phrase, let's say something on that. It says, made perfect forever. Now this does not mean that the Son lacked perfection as a person this is speaking of his office as high priest and the discharge of that office. He perfected the office. He has been made perfect forever as the high priest 
and that he fulfilled the office and what it was perfectly intended for through his life, his obedience, his suffering, his death, resurrection, ascension, and his current session exalted above the heavens. We've seen the son as the consummate priest because of his person, his work, his office. Let me kind of put the finishing touch on this for you here this morning. I hope you're recognizing that I'm not giving you anything new. I'm not giving you anything new. This is just old paths of gospel truth. This priesthood of Jesus Christ is is eminently practical and personal. And I want to tell you that today. It's personal. You know, Jesus didn't die for a nameless, faceless glob of bland, generic humanity. He died for a specific people. In his office... He is a consummate priest of something the old economy priest just hinted at. I mean, you know that by now. He actually atones and intercedes. There's another symbol that adorned the ceremonial garb of the high priests in the old economy on the Day of Atonement. They had the ephod, remember? I mentioned that earlier. Well, it also, through uh, five braided chains, secured a large breastplate that was in the front of the ephod. It attached to those shoulder pieces. It it was gold. It had 12 stones that represented each of the tribes. And engraved on those stones were the names of each of the tribes of Israel. You know, the priest wasn't there to intercede for the Egyptians, for the Amorites, for the Canaanites, the Philistines. No, none of them were ever represented. The way to God has always been exclusive and narrow. And it's by God's design discriminatory. Not all men are represented by the priests in the Old Testament only the people of God's own possession. And bound closely to his heart were the particular people of God brought by name into the presence of God. It seems as if those two pieces of the high priest's garment are connected to his two roles. On his shoulders, on the onyx stones, he carries the weight of the people's burdens, representing their prayers and their intercession. While next to his heart, he bears the weight of their sin, which required the costly sacrifice of a precious life. These symbols are prefiguration of Jesus' priestly ministry, which includes both intercession and atonement. In Hebrews 9.24, it says that Christ entered not a man-made sanctuary, but heaven itself to appear before God on our behalf. He intercedes for us in the presence of God, representing us. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself as the high priest as he enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own like they did. Otherwise, he had need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Atonement made. Paul connects us for us in Romans. Romans 8 verse 1 and 34 It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are upon his shoulders and in his heart. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, he also was raised, who is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. See that? He died, atonement made. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes. United in the one person of Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of his dual mediation. We see the function of priesthood, intercession, atonement, inseparably linked and symbolized in the old covenant. They foreshadowed this real work. It's coextensive. The same people he prays for, we see this in Jesus' life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the high priestly prayer, the same people he prays for are the ones he lays his life down for. John 17, 9, it gives us that scope wonderfully. Verse 9, he says, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, they are yours. He knows his people by name. Not the world, just those given to him. It's always that way with a particular meticulous God. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As long as Jesus lives, what does he do? We celebrate this on the first day of the week, every week, right? The highlight that we worship a living priest, a living savior, a living intercessor. It's a forever salvation. It's complete. It's final. As long as he lives, he intercedes. 
He represents us perfectly, and He knows us by name. Dear friend, have you ever stopped to think this priest who accomplished a perfect redemption knows you perfectly? He knows you inside out. He knows your deepest thoughts, your greatest fears. He knows your insecure feelings, your fleeting anxieties. He knows the weight of your crushing burdens, your knuckle-scratching struggles as you scrape through this life and your earthly pilgrimage. He knows that too. He knows what it's like to have dirt in his mouth, to have nothing to eat. He knows what it's like to walk in your shoes. He knows you intimately in a dear way your closest friend never has. If you're a believer here today, you have confidence in this voyage to a glorious city whose maker is God himself. And when things seem hardest, as the, as the consummate priest, he shoulders your burdens. He's the dear old friend you can turn to when life is unbearably hard. He will help you bury your loved ones. He will help you in your worst state. He will be there for you when you lose your job, when you fail miserably. He is there for you in heaven. And he will perfectly take your broken heart and present it to God. And even more important than that, he took your deepest, darkest, most disgraceful and hidden sins before God to plead forgiveness. And guess what? He perfectly secures that forgiveness because he is a consummate priest. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for this wonderful reminder in your word. We don't give it enough attention or thought in our daily life. We get swept up in the mundane. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together with your people to cause us to stir our souls, to delight and to ponder anew the wonderful richness of our high priest. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just stop more often and to gaze at the foot of the cross the wonders of what our Savior has done. Lord, allow us to just dwell and meditate on that more and more frequently. Lord, that when things are hard, it draws us even closer to our interceding King Priest. Lord, we thank you for all you've given us in him. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.